Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh and welcome back to another session of the Doctor's Lab. Um, you missed us and we missed you in the last session um, two weeks ago and that was due to our, uh, a week ago due to our uh, beloved Dr. Khalid being ill um, and alhamdulillah that he's back with us and um, Khalid, do you want to tell us a bit about what you've endured? Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Yeah, uh, dealing with COVID, dealing with COVID and the and the effects uh, the effects of COVID. So I'm very glad to have tested negative and pretty much be free from symptoms and alhamdulillah be back in action. Just need to get my my weight up again and my my uh, my physical uh, up to par. But alhamdulillah, yeah, it was quite an experience though. Quite an experience, something to take seriously. You know, whatever your position on the vaccine is, I'm still not vaccinated. But um, yeah, but definitely take the take precautions, you know, as best as you can. Yeah, no, it's good to have you back. And I remember the last show that I could tell that there was coughing and a bit of breathlessness from you. And um, yeah, yeah, we've just seen one of our brothers come come back from the brink. Um, He was in a coma for about three weeks, um, induced coma, tracheotomy and everything. So it's it's serious times that we're looking at, as as many of us have realised, when it comes close, when it hits home and loved ones have have, have befallen this illness, uh, the severity of it, if it wasn't recognised before or acknowledged before, it becomes a lot more real um, for for those of us who are witnessing it or experiencing it. So, alhamdulillah, salama, you're you're back to full health. And today... um, uh, Dr. Khalid, Brother Khalid, uh, many have moved on from uh, the anniversary of 9-11 a few weeks ago. And such is the media, such are we, such are we as as humans that we follow the next story. And I feel that it's very important that we still remain focusing on what transpired and how Muslims were affected and the world was affected post 9-11. Um, hence the title, Who Are We? Crisis of Muslim Identity Post-9-11. And before looking at it in this contemporary era, we know at the turn of the 20th century, you had um, a, a lot of Muslim um, societies, Muslim thinkers, um, considering the malaise in the Muslim world, the, the, the di- fragmentation of the Muslim world, the, the destruction and breakup of the, the Khalifa, um, um, and we, we the Khilafa, sorry, um, and we know that even though the Khilafa was fragmented um, early 19, um, 1900s, 1920, 1920, over this period, that it was in disarray anyway under the Ottoman Empire at the time. But then you had individuals that many Western um, uh, academics refer to now, and they confuse their paradigm and their, their, who they were. Um, I'm thinking of none other than Jamal al-Din Afghani, um, Muhammad um, Abdul, and, and these individuals. And, and some mistakenly attribute them to Salafia because of their clarion call to refer to the Salaf, mm. but to contextualize and make it more contemporary um, in, in, in the, uh, taking on board, adopting the advance, advancement of Western civilization post-Enlightenment. Now, while that in itself is not antithetical to Salafia, it was their own beliefs that divorced them from Salafia. So you and I know that. We studied and we looked at that. So we need to make it clear that when uh, individuals are discussing thinkers 
and uh, from the Salaf and everything. They were not them. Yes, they were yeah. thinking about how to merge the, the classical and orthodoxy of Islam and the Sunnah with contemporary times um, at that, that post-colonialization. But mm. their Aqidah and um, their methodology that emanated from their ideology was divorced and in their own admission from the Madhab uh, Aqidah to Salaf. So, mm. but now coming fast forward into um, uh, 9-11 and why am I referring to that first and foremost? Because I want to ask the question, was post 9-11 a significant um pivotal moment for the Muslims like the post-colonial era for the Muslim world when they shed off the the, the yoke, the shackles of colonialism and realised that um, the Muslim world was in a state of demise or stagnation as westernization and the Western world progressed and and um, and basically leapfrogged over um, the Muslim world, taking a lot of, 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 of resources and ideas from the Muslim world. Was 9-11 that particular seismic, pivotal moment for Muslims in the West and, and the wider Muslim world? It's a question that I, I was thinking about. So that's why I'm asking, who are we? Crisis of Muslim identity post 9-11. So yeah. with that introduction, uh, Brother Khalid, let, let me have your thoughts on that. And walaikum salam rahmatullah to um, Frank Zappa, Malahat, and those who have joined us. It's, it's good to have you back with us as well, mashallah. Sister Razina, good to, to have you with us today, mashallah. Mm. So, Tafadun, please go ahead. Um, um, yeah, uh, as you, as you uh, pose in the question, and rightly so, I, I think it was, as you said, seismic in its uh, effect upon the Muslim world and, and upon the world. Upon the world, they're still just realizing the effects, fi- the financial costs and the implications of that from in the Western context, as far as America, what the resources they put in and their allies and, and the, the devastation in, in countries and, and so forth and policy, mm. policy shifts. As far as the Muslims, absolutely, it changed the lives. We know on, on the micro, in the micro sense, we see... On the ground, we know how different it was prior to 9-11, the Dawah and Dawah in general, you know, just going to the street and your Muslim identity uh, compared to after 9-11. You know, people began, I, I know restaurants, Muslim restaurants began that were immigrant restaurants began throwing up the American flag and, you know, outside their restaurants. And it was just such a different time because there was so much anti, uh, so much Islamophobia. You know, and that anti-Islamic sentiment and people began to search and research about Islam. You know, it just it it was seismic. It was seismic for the Muslim world, for the Arab world, for especially places like Saudi Arabia that had policies in which they used to fund a lot of institutions around the world, all over Africa, in Asia. Uh, even in the pro- probably in the UK and in the, in the US and in Europe, Masajid, things like that. A lot of those things that funding was cut off because there was a lot of pressure from America. Hey, it's your curriculum that's doing this. It's your ideology, your Wahhabism. Uh, you know these kind of things. This had has had major implications. It's actually devastated a lot of Dawa in many 
poorer nations that really required that really depended upon that that financial assistance in their uh in building institutions and in giving dawah propagating islam sustaining preachers or or duat and and mashaikh in those countries also even on the level of i can remember so many times seeing it over you know could be in Saudi Arabia for so long uh, you and you and I both seeing for example when you go to give charity and if you wanted it to be international well a lot of those efforts were cut too like no you can't send your zakat to Yemen or you can't do this you can't you know it became very much that it has to be localized because of the fear of funding funding extremism funding terrorism and the pressures from the west upon Saudi Saudi Arabia and also the implications you know what Saudi Arabia experienced they were at the brunt of a lot of those uh, attacks from a lot of those extremist groups like ISIS and Al Qaeda especially you know they were doing a lot of activity and a lot of devastation in Saudi Arabia so yeah so that was- comes that that comes to a very important point um uh Hassan's brought it up on on the WhatsApp message to me that uh, many are saying that um there was a conspiracy um and 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 and, and that's a good, and then before uh, Hassan put that last question back up so we can look at that as well please the one before so if you can put up the question before Hassan uh, doctor yeah. do you think doctors do you think it pushed many muslims mind to adopt liberal values to compensate for this fear to live in their islam due to all the black backlash very, very good question, Sister Rosina. And and actually, um, I, my my PhD studies, and I've got that here. My chapter three, for example, and you won't be able to see it very clear, carefully here, but the title here being um, British Muslims and Identity. And I discussed this. I discussed this fear that took place amongst Muslims, um, and many came out. And we're going to talk about that when I look at the paper on good Muslim, bad Muslim where many felt that the only way that they could distance themselves from um, uh, the extremists and the terrorists was by aligning themselves with the, the, the prevalent narrative at that time, which was the government narrative, which was the, the neocon narrative that said everything against Muslims, not only extremism, but a type of Muslim, a brand of Muslim. So, Rosina, uh, Sister Rosina, very, very good question. And, and it did push others to adopting liberal values, even the next generation who did not want to espouse and appear as their parents. Our generation, for example, um, appeared. Many um, children um, uh, eschewed or shunned their religious identity, even changed their name. Um, have you seen some were no longer Muhammad? They would use the last two names, Ed, the last two letters, Ed, um, uh, Aisha, change, will change her name and, and use a Western non-Muslim name. So this take, did take place. But talking about the point on those who were posting up or who were contacting Hassan uh, on conspiracy, let's assume for one, for, for one moment it is a conspiracy. And on the flip side, it isn't a conspiracy. It doesn't remove the question, who are we? The the crisis of Muslim identity. And this even speaks to those, um, Brother Khalid, who, who are fixed on conspiracy theories. What is our identity? Were the Muslims of old, were the Salaf, was Prophet Muhammad caught up on conspiracy? Or on the flip side... Did the Prophet Muhammad and his companions and the succeeding generations take an opposite approach and discard any 
um, conspiratorial um, stories or whatever. Were they on one side of the coin or, or the other? And what you'll find if we look at them, because of their fervency and uh, uh, attachment to the divine scriptures, to the Quran and the Sunnah, it didn't matter whether it was a conspiracy or not. Because we had the, we had and still have the, the kitab or sunnah. We have the scholarly uh, advice and guidance. We have the tools with which to analyze and apply these, um, these scriptures and these edicts to today. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we have the Scott, the classical scholars, um, and their works. And we have the contemporary scholars looking at how the classical scholars looked at new emergence and things and the onslaught, the crusader onslaught. The, the imperialist onslaught on the Muslim land and how they dealt with that. We see the works of Ibn Taymiyyah with Genghis Khan and, and the, the statements and things that were mentioned around the, around, about the Tarthas, the, 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 uh, the Moguls and, and these, these, um, these crusading <laughs> empires that came in from the West. So yes. whether it's one way or the other, that's not the point. The question comes back again, who are we? And, Brother Khalid, uh, I'll pan back to you shortly. You're saying about the Dao, which from a conspiracy perspective, right. there is some accuracy. There is mm. some credence and validity that certain things were, trains were put in motion to dilute, to dissipate, to destroy the pristine Dao of Tawheed. Okay? Mm. So... Um, I'm going to use that phrase, the, t- the dawah of Tawheed, because this is mm-hmm. what Islam is. This is what we say Salafiyah is. This is what the Sunnah is, the dawah of Tawheed. And there, there is evidence, not only contemporary, but historically, of the designs of, of Western strategy to dilute or destroy the dawah. But I'm going to put something here, Khalid, something very mm-hmm. interesting, which we're going to look at shortly. And I'm saying this as a Salafi who felt it necessary that we needed to stand and show what Islam was, the efficacy of Islam, and differentiate it from the extreme polarizations of extreme Sufism, um, uh, violent extremism, um, terrorism, but according to historical, religious, Islamic definitions and not the constructs and the um, definitions that were given and coined in the West um, up until recently. And on that, I'm going to refer to, there's a a report that came out recently, 20 years, the terror trap, the impact of the war on terror on Muslim communities since 9-11. Okay, Um, I'll I'll show you this. This is what I've got here. Um, And I'm going to refer to a particular chapter. There's a lot in there, which I'm, I'm looking at. Um, some of those who contribute, contributed to it, I don't necessarily agree with the political standpoint that they have, which is anyone and any um, thing that even spoke with the same narrative as the government regarding terrorism um, uh, should be suspected themselves. OK, that's one of the narratives of, of one of the organisations there. And you should doubt them. Cage, for example. Um, I know some of the individuals well, but there's a particular chapter here. Um, the Muslim War on Terror by Farid Hafiz, which I think is really, really um, interesting that he said some things which throws things back at us, back at some of the work that I did, which is a, a valid thing to throw back and be self-critical on. 
And that is basically, did we, in standing up against extremism and fighting extremism, which we'd been doing way before 9-11, it preceded any of the narratives of the government and everything before 9-11, did we inadvertently fall into conspiracy, a plan, a strategy to bolster that Western narrative which was far more overarching and um, clandestine than we would have imagined or we ignored willfully or wittingly or unwittingly. And by our dower, having strands of the same um, narrative, we strengthened the Western call or the Western strategy that uh, basically helped marginalise Muslims. That's an argument that comes mm. from detractors of Salafia. And yeah. is there some truth to that? There could be. It could have been inadvertent. But was that what was taking place? And I would counter that and say, no. We were continuing with a narrative that had predated 9-11, that had preceded the Western hegemonic strategy to diminish the narrative. Um and we were just continuing with that, but on a much more macro scale because of the magnitude of 9-11 and the effects it had upon the world at large. Yeah, there's a lot to say and unpack in what you just uh, put forth. First, I want to start with definitions, because as you were talking about conspiracy, I began to think, Really, what does conspiracy mean? Because we you know, we got to have definitions. So I just looked up from a, from the dictionary a secret plan by a group to do something unlawful or lawful. So a secret plan of a group of people to do something lawful or unlawful. Okay, yeah, we can say conspiracy. Uh, you know, use this term that we. Uh, I, I don't like to say that there's context for a conspiracy in the Quran, but the Quran lets us know that there are the shayateen and the plots of the shayateen and the plots of the enemies of Islam. So we know that. That is a point of wahi. That is a point of revelation. And as you as you were pointing to, you know, that the Prophet وسلم, and the Sahaba they were their tasawr, their world outlook was based on revelation. So it wasn't based on uh, just, you know, you know, these conspiracy things. I don't like when I hear the word conspiracy and the way people do and say 9-11 was a conspiracy. Like people watch too many YouTube videos and they say, no, it, it just didn't happen. Uh, all the Jews didn't go to work that day. And, you know, you, know, you have all this speculation. I don't I'm very much not into that. You know, don't get the vaccine. Bill Gates is putting micro robots. OK, I don't have the vaccine. I do have suspicion about the vaccine, but. I do believe very firmly that we need knowledge, you know, to speak with knowledge. I try to carry that in my whole life, not to speak too much about topics if I don't know. You know, you, right. you can't say you're an expert in these things just because you watch no. thousands of YouTube videos from all kind of people who think like you and aligned with you. So we have to be very careful. I'm not a doctor in essential and using essential oils just because I research a lot of essential oils. I love essential oils. I got some excellent thieves oil right here. And uh, so uh, that doesn't make me an expert. I'm not an expert in coffee because of that. So the consp anyhow, the point being knowledge, firm 
affirmed knowledge. It's so important to thabbut. Another point I want to mention is uh, as far as the identity and going back to the sister's question, I think she when she was talking about about the pushing and both you and I tackled this in our research um, about liberal extremism. What I found, especially there was the element with Al Qaeda, you know, Muslims wanted to distance themselves from that, especially mainstream and, mm. and, and everybody. But really with ISIS, because they had a whole nother level of brutality. They also had a whole nother level of success as far as state building. Um, you know, they were, they had a lot of potential if they would have been wise and not br brutal, not meaning I support those evil, their evil ideology. My point is, is the world was still hesitant. It's just, they were, they were picking fights with the whole world except for the, the, except for, and, and honestly, Israel, they did not want to mm. deal with Israel. Now you can have a conspiracy theory on that. I'm not necessarily going to jump into that, but what I will say is, you know, they took things to another level and the response became liberal extremism. And that's why you have the rise. I'm sorry. Some of you might feel uncomfortable. Hamza Yusuf um, and all of these Sufi think tanks, his, his institution is a multi-million dollar institution. Why? Who's giving him money? Is it just the Muslims? No. A lot of those things. Yaqeen Institute. These guys get million dollar grants. We try to make an institute that teaches you knowledge of Islam. We can't even get a hundred dollars. These guys get millions of dollars from non-Muslim entities to support progressive Muslim ideology, which is, as a sister pointed out, it's that backlash from the extremism of ISIS. So most of the Muslim community now, they just go, they run from, uh, you know, a lot of people running from Islamic identity. I won't say most, I'm going to correct that. But there's also, there is a a whole different level of thought. And on the mi micro level too, I was talking to brothers in Seattle and they said, yeah, we've got these new groups and they're progressive Muslims. We kind of want to send our kids there. These guys have money. These guys are, you know, getting the youth. They're dealing with the youth, dealing with their issues. But yeah. Yeah, they get together. They have music. The sisters and the brothers are all mixed together. Yeah, they, they do this. It's attracting a lot of our Seattle reverts. I, I, I didn't even know there was all these reverts there. But they're going to this progressive Muslim, crazy, insane, evil, lace, ideological community, which is so and, – and they're funded by non-Muslim entities because they're pushing – the progressive agenda. Yeah, you can all, yeah, you can listen to Hadith along with Bob Marley. Bob Marley's hikmah is very much aligned with Hadith. Go ahead and integrate it. Uh, yeah, uh, who's the British guy? Not the one who became Muslim, but another famous British singer. I can't think of him from probably the 60s or 70s. But yeah, you, his, I, his ideas, and I have it documented in a book called Progressive Muslim, where they outline their own ideology. So there is a massive backlash. It affects the mainstream Muslims and all of our identities, because even when you are trying to propagate the truth, you still there's a level of caution to not distance yourself from your audience and also not be under the scope of the intelligence agencies. So there's a different it, it's no doubt we all are a, a product of our of the events around us and our our environment and our time, the time we live in, you know, perhaps our discussion that we're having right now might be different if we were having this discussion 10 years ago, 
You know, there are let many. Let me ask you excellent point, Carlin. So, so let me ask you this question then: Would you say that as a result of us losing, I'd say significant aspects, not completely, but significant aspects of our identity? Mm. Because of these reasons that you've highlighted, because of what Sister uh, Rosina has asked in her question, that we are more divided than ever before in history. Mm. That's 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 hard to say because I just think there's just a lot of. Um, I think, yeah, that that it, it increases the polarization. It does. Yeah, I, I would say so. And I would say even between the groups that are not liberals, for example, if we're honest, Dio Bundy's are not liberal. You know, the the the, no. the, the core of the Jamaat Tablik, you know, those daughter and loom guys, very serious. They grow their be- big, beautiful beards. They're 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 always in a shawar kamis, you know, especially the ones that are Pakistani origin and so forth. And they have their and it's above the ankle, you know, they're and even their women, some they wear niqab. They're very religious and they're very much into religious values even if they have akida or creedal problems so that still that doesn't that we're just as polarized with them as before and i don't know if it's greater but i just think there's just too many factors you know there's so many variables for example technology now everyone can have a platform the progressives can have platforms the sister who's a makeup artist who's doing all her makeup and beauty she can have a platform and start talking about islam too because she's got a massive following she's actually become like a an islamic reference so everyone the tekfiris the the khrujis in birmingham the little kids that sit on there you know these pundits learn a little bit of arabic and just cut and paste books of the salaf these guys have a platform and successful ones, especially when they're youthful and they have the technological know-how. So all of these things as- exacerbate those divisions and and so forth. And going back to one point, the as far as conspiracy, the regard regard the issue of 9-11 and other issues, is there's always someone to benefit from the chaos. So we've got to mm. realize that. Yes, right. I'm not saying it's the Illuminati, as people want to say, and go and go into deep videos and, and all this stuff. But what I do want to say is, no doubt, we know there, there, there there's the armies of the Shiatin. There are satanic movements and satanic ideologies. And there are people who's, who worship wealth and worship power and who benefit from divisions and benefit from these things who benefit from war, who benefited from the war in Afghanistan and Iraq and instability in these countries. They benefit from the chaos in Somalia and they benefit from the chaos between Muslims and the loss of their identity. So there's, there's always evil out there to benefit from uh, contemporary situations and realities, regardless of whether they cause it or not, you know? And I think, uh, thank you for that. for that. And I think uh, as well, what we have to look at is that as Muslims, we've come from an identity perspective where there's good Muslim and bad Muslim. And some might say, well, how can you say that about because you Salafis, you spoke out against extremism, the Takfiris. We have to do that. Um, enjoying good and forbidding evil, distinguishing right from wrong. That's that aspect. But what I'm saying is now the general populace have fallen into this thing, sticking with um, uh, Sister Azina, what she's mentioned, this liberalism has lent itself to we cannot subscribe to religious orthodoxy because that is what is being targeted. 
um, the niqab. Even Muslims are frowning upon the niqab, despite the fact everyone's wearing face masks these days. Um, the hijab has been frowned upon for long. The beard continues to be frowned upon, despite the fact non-Muslim society is, is, um, has advocated the return of the beard. But when it becomes Muslims, we've got Muslims frowning upon it and not wanting their children, some cis wives not wanting their husbands to be wearing, growing the beard, some husbands not wearing their, wanting their wives to be wearing hijab. And it, this chapter that I mentioned by this individual, um, Hafiz, he mentions this. He says, um, in this context of good Muslim, bad Muslim, the Islamic civilization's knowledge, values and way of life are automatically dismissed as particularistic, provincialist, subjective, undemocratic, irrational and non-universal. From this perspective, the westernized political, cultural, etc. elites in Muslim-majority countries can either be regarded as part and parcel or as operating within the framework of a racial structure. The broad context in which elites are involved represents itself in the European local experience that became hegemonic on a global scale. Stay with me for a moment. This intellectual dependency or captive mind is particularly obvious for those cultural, political and other elites who were educated outside their native homelands in Western universities. Then he goes on, and I'll conclude on this part shortly. With this hegemony of knowledge production in the centres of the global north, a non-Muslim perspective on Islam has become the starting point for many Muslim thinkers and policymakers, consciously as well as unconsciously. And he goes on, and the last part that I want to mention from this, this um, excerpt here, but this does not mean that every kind of Muslimness is per se framed as an enemy, okay? So not all Islam is per, uh, perceived as an enemy by those who are seeking to dissipate it, dilute it from the mm. Western strategic standpoint. Part and parcel of every racial hierarchical system is the imagination of a dual identity be it the house, he's bleated it out, but I will say it as a black man, the house Negro next to the field Negro or nigger. The consp- he doesn't quote it here. He's being very, he's obviously not from our ethnicity, so that's why he's, he's bleated it out. Um, the conspiratorial Jew next to the court Jew or the good Muslim next to the bad Muslim. The submissive other that subordinates himself to the power is always tolerated unless he, she rebels. Now, I'll stop on that point there. And I think some very good points that he mentions there. But that's where you remember my PhD, my, my book, chapter three that I referred to. You have the social control element that Muslims post 9-11 grabbed onto when previously they refused to do so. When you had the Salman Rushdie affair in 1989, that's when the Muslim voices became a lot more vocal because of the, the, the blasphemous statements that were made by Salman Rushdie in his book. And so you didn't see that social control. You didn't see the Muslims um, grabbing onto that social fabric and saying, we want to have, as it's termed, the legitimized identity and go hand in hand with what government defines our behavior as being. Previously, maybe they did that, but it didn't come under a religious construct. It came under a cultural construct, especially from the West, from a British perspective. So let me be clear in case I'm losing anyone. Prior to the Salman Rushdie case, the Muslims communities, the South Asian communities in particular, did not use religion 
as an identity marker preceding the Salman Rushdie affair in and of itself. The Salman Rushdie affair in 1989 was pivotal in them coming together saying, we are Muslims, and this is blasphemous. The irony of this, though, was the one at the helm of that call was the Isna Asharia um, Khomeini, okay, <laughs> at that time. So Sunni Muslims even gathered en masse to that call and the the, death, the fatwa of death upon Salman Rusty at the time. That's the, one of the first times it was seen in the UK that the South Asians came together under the identity construct of religion. But mm. let's fast forward now to what was being said in that chapter there. Now, there's that grasping of what the government says is a good Muslim. And you've got the progressives and the liberal extremists saying, we are those good Muslims. And those bad Muslims, those filled Negroes, are the Salafis, the Diabandis, including the Takfiris and, and the, the, uh, these entities here. So they've taken up that legitimised identity, which is, I'll give a de- definition, that which is introduced by the dominant institutions of society in order to extend and rationalise their domination through social actors. This is the identity construct that those that um, Sister Rosine has highlighted have gone in that liberal sense because they don't want their heads to be above the parapet. They don't want the radar to fall upon them. So they've shunned particular aspects of orthodoxy to fit in. And then you've had those who promote themselves, like William, like Hamza Yusuf, like these individuals, like even Yasakadi, the trend that he's gone along um, um, in promoting a particular brand of palatable, Islam mm. is palatable on the whole, mm. that's why it's the fastest growing faith in the world, but a palatable, diluted brand that government can embrace and adopt. So Khalid, that's one yeah. aspect that we see have happened from a liberal um, perspective and that's why we have a crisis of identity because we're not holding on to the characteristics and the descriptors of what Muslims are, according to the Quran and Sunnah, correctly contextualised sorry, um, within the climes of the societies that we live in and the cultural aspects that are conducive to Islam. That seems to have gone out of the window, especially in the West, where they're searching for, uh, quote, unquote, Western Islam, British Islam, American Islam. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be an Islam that is um, synonymous with our existence in these societies. Or that we have our own Muslim identities. We have our identity as a Muslim. Right, but it it shouldn't be at the expense of core values of the deen. Of course, of course. Yeah, all of it, it it ties in. There's that paradigm shift. Um, I... Do, yeah, I believe, yeah, it, it's at a, from a seeking the pleasure of governments and so forth and that acceptance. But I think they have also carved out their own space. They Some of them had voices. The, the backlash, the issue is, is now they have huge podiums where they were even the mainstream Muslims prior to some of these events. And especially, I think really ISIS was a catalyst that you saw even mainstream Muslims rejected some of this stuff. For example, we have a guy, he's written extensively, and I quoted from him extensively in my research. He is a, a professor in the uh, University of California system. Uh, he's Egyptian in his origin. I forgot his name, Fadl. 
I think his name's something Fuddle. I have some of his books back here. And anyhow, he is a, a very, you know, a figurehead in that progressive movement. And he's written extensively in-depth ideologies with glaring methodological and creedal mistakes in there pushing his identity and their their agenda this a progressive ideology but he can articulate it in a way you know because he's a very well educated you know professor and this and that and the other and he also has you know egyptian background so he's well versed in the arabic language being an educated uh person so he he's very good at articulating those ideologies and 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 you can see even a commonality with early sects without like the Martesina and stuff, you know, because they, they put their intellect above. So for them, they take a lot of general Islamic principles. For example, in my research here, uh, uh, talking about democracy and so forth, that you'll find that they will say, Shura, you know, we have Shura in Islam. That's democracy. So, you know, we can vote and we can do all of these other things. You know, they justify their acceptance of secular values and secular institutions, they try to justify it through the Quran itself, you know, by taking general pr principles. Okay, so for them, be just, uh, justice. That's a, a fundamental value in Islam and, you know, to many people and in many faiths, justice. So they can quote an ayat about justice and Allah loves the Qanitun, the, 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 um, uh, you know, the people of justice and so forth, as Allah says in the Quran, all throughout the Quran. So they will say, well, justice, so that means being just and fair and kind and embracing and empathetic to the LGBTQ and everybody else that's getting added onto that list. That means embracing them, embracing their ideology. That's that Islamic democratic framework, you know, they take anything, just they'll take a general principle and give it a non-Sharia context. And that is how they co-opt this, you know, yeah, as you say, progressive Muslims. And you have people, I, I saw in a, a group I was on in Seattle Muslims or something like this, a guy listed in there, he said, I'm going to be moving to Seattle. Are there any progressive mosques? You know, and I just it just it made me sick. But but the point is, is they they try to justify their ideology and their evil practices, practices that totally contradict so many other Sharia principles, so many divine texts of the Sunnah, because they don't give any importance to the Sunnah of the Prophet. And they have it's almost like their own tafsir. You know, you can be a Muslim communist. And it reminds me when I embraced Islam. You know, I used to take the use of Ali translation and I was, you know, because my major was political science and, you know, and I was into philosophy and all these other ideologies, you know, I would try to reconcile, you know, communism and the Quran. Oh, the Quran says this. Yeah. Um, you know, that's very much in, you know, with Marxist ideology and, you know, because of no knowledge and because of desires. Now, I won't say I was just following my desires. I just didn't have knowledge. I was a new Muslim. But the progressive ideology they will co-opt you know and and like i said i have beautiful quotes where they're talking about uh and i'll find them before we end our thing but uh talking about you know bob marley and 
every, everyone from Ali Abi Talib to Bob Marley to, you know, every, all these entertainers and stuff like this and the wisdom that they offer and that they are, this, you know, that, that like almost like they're taking their Akita from them. You know, it's crazy. So you see it, it, uh, there's a backlash and there's a progressive onslaught. Aggressive onslaught is part of that. Uh, is a part and, of that. And before we move off from that, um, Hassan, can you put back up what the Alpha said? Because what he said endorses um, what um, Brother Khalid was saying. That last comment there by that many of these progressive Muslims compromise on religion, rejecting the verses of Allah and Sahih Hadith to satisfy the Western. Many of them are not Muslims in reality. And and on that last part, um, can I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, can I interrupt you for a quick minute? Just go ahead. Go ahead. Here's a quote of Al-Fadl, and it shows you how he, the ta'wil, the, the, the twisting, because they only, they really only give importance to the Qur'an, like the Mu'tazila, like original sect. So he says, the Qur'an does not completely exclude the possibility that there might be other paths to salvation. What is he saying? He's saying that there might be Jews and Christians who are going to paradise now, and and others, maybe they're a, a Buddhist. They're just such so good in their values. Their values are so Quranic that there's a possibility. This is how I'm saying. This guy's an educated guy, uh, a professor at uh, uh, um, you know University of California system, you know. And he says this. He says one component of the issue of this issue has to do with who might be entitled to God's mercy. In fact, the Quran is, expresses indignation at those who attempt to limit or apportion God's mercy according to their wills and desires. For him, wills and desires means the sunnah, you know, because the sunnah limits a lot of those things. It defines the, uh, about, about the mercy of Allah, Tabaraka Ta'ala, and, and, you know, so many hadith about the mercy of Allah, and the madhab, or the, the way of the salaf asari. We have so much, but it's like he throws that whole thing out for his own tafsir and their own clinging to general precepts in the quran to just build a whole new ideology like i said justice for them yeah you can go between the the priestesses these priestesses of shirk and kofr and 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 zina <laughs> that have changed their sexual orientation and just go and march with them hand in hand arm in arm because you are all defending justice the point is justice so their justice is defined by their desires instead of the book of Allah the sunnah the messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam now i think yes and sticking with what alpha said there he's mentioned something at the end there you've mentioned that that real dilution of those who are calling for justice and justice according to which term, according to which definition. And where he says that some of them are not Muslim in reality, that is a statement that's quite poignant because some would say, oh, he's doing, um, this is a takfir. We've actually, and it's not, because we've actually seen some of these influencers who have built up millions of followers, the hijab wearing um, um, sister who's a makeup artist. I'm not saying all, but some, and then suddenly they've said, I have doubts in my faith and they've left, I'm leaving the religion. And yeah. you've seen droves who've been influenced by them following suit or having mental health issues because that complete U-turn from the people they've been following. So, And they've all come from the progressive um, um, perspective. 
But then there's the flip side. Then there's the other end of the um, spectrum. And as you know, from one of my frameworks, I talk about the polarization, the pendulum swing. And that's where we see the violent extremism, violent radicalization start taking place because some look at this liberal perspective. And before it was this progressive one, they were looking at their parents. Remember, I mentioned prior to them, uh, especially in the UK, identifying according to the framework of being Muslim, religiosity, it was according to ethnic ethnicity from Pakistan, from Kashmir, from which part of Pakistan, from Bangladesh, from India, from, from these particular um, cultural backdrops. And the second, third generation being raised in the UK saw this and dissociated themselves from this. They became a lot more politically aware. They became a lot more religiously aware. And as we saw in the 90s, the Gulf War, then there was a, a po there was a, a basic politicization that was taking place and a, a cognitive opening for many of these second, third generation who then had a pendulum swing effect from this liberalism of their parents, this cultural traditionalism of their parents, right across to this political perspective that resonated more with them, talking about oppression in the world, the, the, the dislike of the non-Muslims and the societies and the, the stratagem against Islam, and they moved in that particular area and developed in some instances, but in not all instances is this bad. I'm going to say what I mean by that. We spoke about legitimizing identity, that which the government has prevalent amongst those who subscribe to it. Then we saw deviance, and I've mentioned this in previous um, uh, podcasts with you, deviance being resistance identity. And when that these two identities, legitimized and resistant identities, have played out in Hong Kong quite recently, the yellow shirts in France, the protest movements that we've been seeing um, after George Floyd and everywhere else, we've seen resistance identity. And they haven't been frowned, frowned on or subjugated uh, to the degree that we have witnessed with Islam from a covert perspective. From an overt perspective, yes, we saw them crushing um, the, some of the marches, George Floyd. We saw what they did in Hong Kong, which was very repressive. We've seen what happened in France with the, um, the, the yellow shirts and under the, the, the flag of democracy, um, the, uh, challenging those voices of dissent. But overtly, over a sustained period of time, in the manner that Islam has been um, over, um, covertly attacked from within as well, we haven't seen that. We haven't seen that with the ideology because this is an ideological premise and battle that they are fighting. So resistance identity developed amongst those politicised youth. And it, some would say that Salafia um, and other Muslim trends are resistance in themselves. And what's the definition that's been given to these? the dissolution of former legitimizing identities that used to constitute civil society, giving rise to resistance identities which are pervasive in the network of society. So once law-abiding citizens subscribing to society's ideals and, um, and narratives, suddenly, as I've mentioned Hong Kong, I've mentioned France, I've mentioned other um, uh, protest movements, suddenly saying... We're not with this. We disagree with this. Mm. However, with Islam, 
Islam hasn't been in disagreement as such. We have to understand this. Islam has been consistent and the message of Islam has been consistent from the door, from the perspective of justice for all, but according to a divine dictate and not the compromised one, diluted one that you've mentioned there. So let's be clear. We're talking about who are we? Who Mm. are we? The crisis of Muslim identity. And we've spoken about various constructs and various paradigms in which as Muslims, there is a confusion as to who we are, which is causing polarizations on both sides, the progressive side, the the um, extremist, violent extremists. And each perspective are bringing narratives, are bringing contexts from the deen to justify their polarizations. So we, being those in the middle, inshallah, those, and I say inshallah for, as a, as, as a, as a, um, uh, a Muslim mainstream um, uh, larger body, inshallah. But with certainty, looking at what we understand of religious orthodoxy, this is the middle path. The hadith, you would, you can come from the religious perspective, um, Khalid, as with your knowledge, the religious path, the, the Prophet drawing that line in the sand and saying this is the straight path, those divergent paths that we referred to many times before. It should become clearer for us, for our um, participants, viewers, to understand that all of these political terminologies and constructs that Brother Khalid and I are talking about that we've looked at in our PhDs, let's bring it back to this. The progressives on one side, liberal extremism, violent extremism, terrorism, Khariji um, ideology on the other side. We are in the mainstream, the middle, that path that the Prophet drew the line in the sand with. And once we bring that paradigm to the fore, it should help us to focus on our identity. It should help us to re-anchor ourselves as to who we are, what we stand for. But we have to start on the individual basis because too many of us are externally referencing. And this is where the conspiracy theories are coming in. This is where the diminishing of conspiracy theories are coming in. And Muslims are caught up in that mess. And this hadith about the the straight line, what we say 17 times a day, ifdina sirat al-mustaqib. What to who? Sirat al-Ladina and Amta alayhim. No. So clear. Fatih has this right in front of us. So, so clear of that straight path. So, so clear about avoiding these polarizations and these divergent paths. And if we look at that alone, then maybe that crisis, crisis of identity that we are finding. And there are many other um, typologies and constructs. I looked at them in my PhD and they're even more beyond that. But we need to come back and ask, who are we? And the answer is there. The answer is there and we we say it regularly in our salah. The answer is there in the seerah of the Prophet The answer is there in how the salaf dealt with issues that were contemporary and emerging in their time, in preservation of their identity. And Brother Khalid, I've gone on enough to, to speak from the point of the resistance identity to show the two polarizations, and, and I'll, I'll pass it back to you at this point. Mm. 
So in line of what, what, with what you said and so forth, here's a, this is a quote from Roy. Um, can't think of his first name, but he wrote. Olivia, Olivia Roy. Yeah, wrote about the French. Uh, I mean, um, anyway, anyway, you're familiar with him. Here's one of his quotes in, in the context of what we're saying, talking about that backlash, talking about how the reaction in denouncing Muslim fundamentalism. Okay, he says the denunciation of Muslim fundamentalism thus masks other targets and other stakes. The label of fundamentalism, which is very useful for polemics, is applied from the outside. Who is that? Maybe the Western, the state, you know, as you you were alluding to. When Muslims and non-Muslim entities, basically, when Muslims are called on to adopt a reformed and liberal Islam, they are expected to situate themselves in relation to analytical framework that has been prepared for them without asking questions about the meaning of their practices and the nature of choices involving their identity. And that's why you see your boy Macron so vigilant about that. You know, of course, I don't know what the French term is, but that assimilation that that is what they want. They want you to be, he's like, he's not going to wipe out Islam in, in France, but rather French Muslims have to conform to that right. French identity. We are going right. to define that for you. The state is now defining for you what is acceptable because you can't go against French values, no matter what your Islam says, no matter what, right. even if it's a harmless aspect, uh, you know, wearing the hijab or something like this, it goes against French values. Yes, you can be Muslim, Keep it in the house. You know, we're going to give you a secular Islam. So this is what the progressives and going back to a comment someone said, we need to spend more time reaching out to the progressives. Absolutely not. That's just that's I'm sorry. Yes, Dawa to everyone. But they are some of the most hardcore and um, arrogant. And I and I would bring you. Yeah, these building bridges. I have some beautiful quotes. I just can't find them since we're, you know, under time constraints in my research. What these guys say for them, everything that we're talking about, this kitab was sunnah stuff, the salaf, all of this stuff is regressive. It's not intellectual. It's not enlightening. Our progressive ideology is really on another level. These arrogant people, pompous. And as one of the brothers said, he he was not he was alluding to Tekfir. Yes, many progressives. Let's be honest. If you look at their aqidah, what they believe in Islam, they don't even some of them they're not even Muslim. It's just the reality. That's Tekfir is a part of the deen. If you mm-hmm. say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a woman, well, you are not a Muslim. Yeah, we should give you some dawah. Let's educate you. This is what our congresswoman, the Palestinian girl, whatever her name is, I can't think of her name. Uh, from the quartet, you know, the three or whatever, like with um, is it Il- Ilham Umar? Il- with Ilhan Home, she's a part of that crew, but there's a, a Palestinian one, she's from Palestinian origin, American Palestinian woman, and she said something like, I don't like to refer to Allah as a he, I refer to as a her. So, this is what progressive ideology. This is very much in line with it. If you, you know, this is their book. This is what they're defining it. These are a series of essays of so many progressives defining it and, uh, you know, giving us their very quotes. We believe that 
other stuff is backwards. You know, but let me interject, Carly. I'm, I'm with you on that. But then I would say to you what Brother Liam is saying here. We have brothers, those who are dear to us as well, who are making some strides and impact, albeit we're not seeing it seismic, but are, are there and are, are engaging with some of these progressives who are more receptive and actually asking them to, to, to um, scrutinise particular aspects of work and academic papers that are coming out, okay? And I've spoken with these with, with, with one of the brothers, you know, Asher, mashallah, beloved Sheikh and brother who's involved in that. And I've seen some of the groundwork and some of the changes that are being made. They're very, very small. So I, I wouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater on, on what brother um, Liam has said. If you've got particular individuals who are capable I'd hope that you are if you chose to, to, do, to do that. Very few brothers who are capable, qualified and versed to be able to effect an influence, as this brother has been doing. Some of those of the progressives who are more empathetic and have some element or previous anchoring with orthodoxy. I wouldn't say to leave them completely in the same way that we have engaged with um, the takfiris, and we've argued with them, we've challenged them, and they've come. Some of them have come back. Some have disagreed, and we continue to have that very vociferous debate and and, and with them. But in the same instance, like Ali Rajilahu and um, when I spoke when asked about the the the, um, the Khari, Kharij at the time, um, he said that when they asked, were they disbelievers? Are they this? Are they that? And he said, no, there are brothers in Islam who um, have gone astray or who rebelled, and we fought them for their rebellion. Now, I know you've said before, and it's a very poignant part you've mentioned, that the, the tuck theories, um, their ideology is more sound than the progressives in the sense of the dilution of the progressive ideology. I, I, I agree with you in that. Nonetheless, they're both polarised extremes. But within that umbrella, under that umbrella of our deen, those who are upon the middle path, as we, we are, as we understand ourselves to be, and many others should continue to try and pull these two in from the peripheries that they are upon. But it's not for everyone to do that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, uh, let's see. What can I say? I don't like our brother Lim, the way he phrased it, we need to build more bridges. That is problematic. That's what really stuck out to me. Dawa, yes. Everyone give Dawa. You share the message. You know, you should share the message. As I said, they are some of the most arrogant in general. I'm not talking about the general basic Muslims that are on the thing. Uh, because the dialogue is there, brother Lim. Let me, let me Liam. finish. Liam. Okay. Uh, may Allah bless us and you. The dialogue is there. But if we are to take an Islamic approach, again, it's not our desires. It's not because we feel good and we want to empathize. Yeah, I can engage with someone who's an LGBTQ person and really, you know, drink tea with them and bring them over to the house. And we just let's get on common ground. Uh, her, it, whatever. Let's just sit and, and you know, there's limits in Dawah. There is a way of Dawah. You are following the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. 
you have to realize and analyze. Look at the Dawah of the Prophet ﷺ, how he gave Dawah. How did the Sahaba, when the Sahaba heard about some of the types of heresy that people were giving, they didn't say, oh, I got to go over and give that guy some Dawah. The Qadariyah, they really need some Dawah. You know? No, he said, tell him that I am free from him and he is free from me. This is what Omar said, uh, Ibn Omar, the Sahaba, they defended the religion. We have the religion because there were tools. There was a methodology for dealing with this. When you have people who espouse kufr, I don't say that they that they shouldn't get dawah. Yes, they get dawah. They know the arguments better than most of you, probably better than myself. You study some of those, their figureheads. They know they can engage and they will twist and come with history. Because their deen is based on history. Their deen is based on, he's talking about the division of the Shia and, and Sunni. You know, he's saying that pluralism is a part of Islam. No, it's not. Pluralism is not a part of Islam. Islam is calling you to, to be on the Sirat al-Mustaqim. You don't have a choice. You can't say, well, you know, yeah, Islam is, you know, but if I take a Buddhist uh, philosophy and mix it in, I'm still Muslim. I'm still good. If I am an extreme tech theory like Abu Bakr Baghdadi, I'm still good. That's great. Let's all put it together. That's not what Islam is. Islam says this is a sirat al-mustaqim. Allah says, This is my straight path. Follow it. He commands you. That's your job as a Muslim. If you're not Muslim, okay, you have something different. I'm talking about you as Muslims. You have to follow that. Hadha sarati. He sarati meaning my path. And then but he then said, Mustaqim. But Tabi'u, he commanded you to follow it. I'm not saying that these guys have dawah. They know they don't want to hear anything. Yeah, give dawah. Go talk to if you have the ability. But when you say building a bridge, you can't build a bridge where there isn't even any tools. You don't have tools. You don't even have the, the frameworks. You don't even have the things. Some guy is saying that Bob Marley is equivalent to Ali ibn Abi Talib and you should take both the spirituality from, from both. No, there's no bridge. They, they destroyed almost all the fundamentals uh, fundamentals of Islam. That's the problem. That's why there is two, no two points. There's no bridge. Two points. No, two points. Alhamdulillah, Liam's, Brother Liam's agreeing with you saying you're on the same page, but there's a context that may have been um, lost in, in how we're discussing it. Two points. Alhamdulillah, for what you're saying, as, as we're drawing to conclusion. Umar bin al-Khattab's statement, and we, we look and we look at what Sheikh al-Bani has said gen, in generality following that. When you're speaking from a perspective of dominance, the, the Muslim, uh, Omar was speaking from uh, the, the point of the uh, society in which the Khilafah was established. He was a Khalifa. Their Islam was prevalent. Then we look at what Sheikh Al-Labani says with regards to the approach when we are in the minority in, 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 in this example. Not being pass passive, but then the manner in which we engage, the manner in which we connect or disconnect with fellow Muslims is something that we need to take it, take into consideration being in a p position of weakness. Now I'm not going to talk about Meccan, Medinian. I'm not, not, we're not talking about that, that, those constructs at all. I'm talking about the reality of where, when we're in a minority, when we're in majority, when the society is Muslim, when the society is not Muslim, it's Dal Islam, it's Dal Kufa or uh, Dal disbelief as the, the term is, as we see the constructs that were discussed 
um, via Salaf, Sheikh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah speaks about them in detail. And these affect the identity and the personality of the Muslim um, on these occasions. And so I think that, yes, what you've said, I think no one would um, disagree with that in its entirety. Pluralism now, that in the, the way that the progressives are discussing it, no. But pluralism within cultural um, constructs, pluralism within um, from the from a Muslim predominant context, because you had the dhimmis living um, amongst the Muslim societies at that particular time. Yes, but again, these are not constraints, but they are within parameters that have been defined by the deen, mashallah. And before I hand over I mean, to you on that, so, exactly, that, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So before, before I, start, I just wanted to give that sort of that sort of context, so that no one thinks, oh, we saying no, none of this is black and white and everything. It is black and white to an extent, but there are shades in between. But it's got to be within the parameters of what Islam says. Those shades and different um, aspects are; those different levels are. And the other aspects I will I'll bring uh, Khalid in which mm. is taking place with regards to identity. And I will conclude on this point and hand over to you. I mentioned that legitimized identity, which the Muslims post 9-11 grabbed onto to say, we belong, we belong, we, we belong. And we always belonged. OK, we've always belonged. But they wanted to make a show of it. And some went to extreme, extremely liberal lengths to do that. But then you have, so you've got that, you've got the resistance identity that I, I mentioned. And the resistance identity isn't just for those who went to the Takfiri extreme, okay? There are those of us who said, no, we don't subscribe to the narrative of the government. We don't subscribe to this war on terror. And by by default, we fell into a type of resistance identity. As I said, it's not all bad in, in and of itself. But then you had the hybrid identity, and uh, vagrant identity. And what are these? These are constructs that Renani, SR Renani highlighted, and I mentioned them in my PhD. And the main characteristic here is the absence of any distinct identity. That's the hybrid identity. Individuals in this category are primarily influenced by two factors, religious and cultural roots, alongside more newer general environments into which they have been placed. This category largely consists of new immigrant communities. And you can see that from those who are coming from Syria, coming from parts of Africa and landing in the West and everything. You can see that hybrid identity. They have the cultural and religious roots, some of it albeit diluted in some instances, but they are now embracing the new environment and what it means to fit into that, that environment. Then you have those who have the vagrant identity. It's the last construct, the last um, typology um, reference I want to give. This categorization, as I mentioned, refers to the younger generation who are not inclined towards any particular identity, irrespective of whether it's cultural, traditional, religious or modern. They're not confused about their identity. They are, however, disordered in the unpredictability of their behavior so far as loyalties are concerned. And that's a concern for our young. Having that vagrant identity where we're not bothered about our identity. We're not, they, they are accepting of new emerging identities that are antithetical to Islam, the LGBTQ and all these other um, movements. They're, they're relaxed with that. This is our reality. This is our generation. Um, 
Um, you've got Muslims identifying as binary. You've got Muslims not preferring, they want the pronouns. And I think there's 52 or 53, I don't know. Baskin Robbins, I know, has 51 flavours. I don't know about the pronouns now, which one. So, so in, in, in this example that I'm, I'm discussing, the undetermined vagrant identity of our youth is only going to give rise in the absence of knowing the religious identity to mental health issues, mental well-being problems, psychological breakdowns, um, suicide. If these identities are not underpinned by their religious orthodox identity that needs to become more prevalent now and rise to prevalence amongst this mosaic of confusing identities. And yes, Sister Shama, it's a confusing state for the younger generation. And that's why us, Sister Shama, yourself, brothers, Liam, those who are here, Malahat, and those who have uh, contributed, reactionary, we need to make the mainstream voice of orthodoxy more prevalent today if we're going to reclaim and recapture that middle space that's occupied by mainstream Muslims and if we are going to reclaim and protect the following generations. Uh, Khalid, I'll leave it to you to conclude, inshallah. Yeah, I, I don't know if there's anything to add. You, you articulated it very well uh, about the crisis. We have a crisis of identity, especially with our youth. Um, and, and that's even subdivided depending on youth of which culture. And I was talking to one of my... Well, my ex-employer, a friend of mine, and and we were talking to him, and I was saying, well, you know, if we go across the bridge to Seattle, the youth over there, they have different issues than your youth on this side, because the east side is different, you know, and, and those things, and it's a wealthier community. You have software engineers, predominantly some Arabs, but uh, Indo-Pakistani identity or South Asia, South Asia or what have you. And a lot of well-educated and, you know, they have wealth in their communities and they're losing their youth to more secularism, this progressive ideology and, and so forth. The youth on the other side of the water, these poorer communities, which tend to be Somali, uh, East African in general, and revert and, and just various other communities. They are tending to lose their, uh, their genazes are from gang violence and so forth. You know, there's a, there's a difference, although they're still dealing with the effects of the progressive, because it's just a progressive onslaught in the society and that, and the progressives themselves, they define their Islam. And if you honestly look, I, I, I challenge any of you to please bring me by the next podcast, a progressive definition and, 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 and their, with their ideology that brings anything from the son of the prophet, they almost totally write it off. So that is totally rejected from the start. And so the, this, this, this crisis for the youth, they're faced with so many uh, things. We are faced with it even as not being the youth any any longer. We're faced with these attacks and this onslaught and the audacity. But there are so many of our youth that are even, they're just not even near the masjid. They are pure gangbangers. 
there are pure gangbangers that are have a an is a piece of Islamic identity. You know, they'll have in their rap video themselves wearing like a thobe and then talking about killing people. You know, but in the masjid, you know, they won't be singing the rap in the masjid, but that might be in the video. So you have total divisions, and these are subcultures. These are all kind of issues. The youth are faced with absolute, you know, and that's why it's it's very important. This this uh, the the topic of this podcast of the importance of establishing a Muslim identity, but it's knowing really where that Muslim identity comes from. Being as the sisters mentioning, proud of who we are learning who we are because a lot of muslim youth even if they were raised in the duksiga quranka which is the the quranic uh you know uh institute and they memorize the quran they don't know anything about islam they graduate they're just doing everything that everyone else they are a product of their society and the society is in a social moral decay and so are our muslim youth and everything else we're we're faced with an onslaught unprecedented from every angle and as the scholars in the past mentioned, especially like Sheikh Islam Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Al-Qayyim, they talked about how the shaitan uh, attacks from the shahwat and the shubahat, from the desires and from the doubtful issues. So we have our youth being attacked from both angles. Mm-hmm. And all of us are attacked from both angles around the world, but especially in the West and especially as Muslim minorities. And, you know, we see it with du'at, that have studied in Yemen and studied 10, 15 years, been Muslim and leaving Muslim and then having podcasts, you know, why I left Islam. And and he was a caller and a translator of books. We have those kind of examples too. So it's not just the youth. We're all under this onslaught. And your Islamic identity is really going to come back to going back to the book of Allah and the son of the messenger of Allah and educating yourself more about Islam. So you know what Islamic identity is. Not because it's still not sufficient that you're from Indonesia and our Islamic identity is like this. That's not sufficient. There may be some excellent um, cultural values imparted there that are in conformity to Islam, but your Islamic identity, it's going to really come through education. I don't say everyone's going to be a scholar or going to be a student of knowledge, but there is some obligatory knowledge all of us have to learn. We have to know who Allah is, how to worship him properly. All of that is a part of that Islamic identity. We need to know, you know, uh, you know, the basics of Tahara and how to purify ourselves and how to uh, we need to know who we are. And that's only going to through, come through Islamic education. Mashallah, I, I think that this has been such an important topic. Um, the input that has come, thank you, Aisha, um, such a huge topic. Yes, yes, even as adults, the identity of being Muslim has been lost, definitely trickles yeah. down to the younger generation. Jazakumullah khair for your input, everyone. I hope you found this beneficial. Um, let's see what we can do by learning ourselves. Um, yes, brother uh, Marcelo, yes, a good um, examples there. And we will see you in two weeks, inshallah, with another engaging discussion. And I want it to be clear, um, Stream Islam and the discussions that are taking place, they're not being done just for the sake of talking and empty rhetoric. Um, Khalid and myself, Abdurrahim and myself, Brother Hassan, who's in the background, and the whole team there, when preparing these lectures, 
first it's a point of ibadah for all of us and for yourselves. Why access to Shama? But also it's a point of reflection and implementing what we are discussing upon ourselves. When I hear Brother Khalid, um, I, I look at what he's saying, the benefits I'm taking. I look at what I'm imparting and asking myself, am I part of the problem individually and societally? So these are, mashallah to Barakallah, Stream Islam, I believe are doing a very, very good job. Jazakum Allah khayra to them. But let's not just make these points of information. Let's make them points of knowledge, as Khalid has concluded, by really learning our deen, so we can effect change on a micro level, and then it becomes macro collectively, inshallah. Jazakumullah khair, all of you, and see you in two weeks, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Hayyakum Allah. Ameen. Ameen.